If you would, please take your Bibles out and open them up to the book of Daniel. There we resume our study this morning. We have been making our way through this book, as you know, but before I say much more, if you happen to not be here last week and you haven't gotten around to listen to Richard's message, you really should do it. It was a fantastic message on Hebrews chapter 10 with a wonderful uh, the premise of the, just the deep importance of the local gathered body. So if you were not able to be here with us, I really want to encourage you to make sure you listen to that as it was a good gospel-centered message about how important the local church is. Uh, this morning we're back to Daniel 4. We're continuing to examine this dream of Nebuchadnezzar. And if you kind of pay attention to sermon titles, you know that we repeatedly look at, within the context of Daniel, suffering and mercy. Well, in fact, if you were to just really thumb through the pages of the Bible casually and start looking through the, the Scriptures as a whole, you will find that often the themes are mercy and suffering. And that's because God, I think, from the very beginning, when he had Moses begin writing the first books of the Bible and then the inspiration of the other biblical authors, he wanted to disabuse humans, especially humans who put their faith in him, of this notion that you're going to have paradise on earth. He wanted to disabuse us of the fact that once you put your faith in, in God, nothing else bad or wrong will happen to you. So he constantly on the pages of Scripture lays out the hardships and trials of people, of humanity, in, and beside that, his mercy. In other words, he's not saying, follow me and you'll never have trouble. He's saying, follow me and your troubles become bearable because the yoke and the burden I lay on you is light. He says, you live in a world filled with sin, cursed by sin, filled with death. You live in a world of evil, yes, you're going to get stained from time to time. But he offers us something that cleanses those stains away. He offers us something that gives us hope even when we struggle. So we will yet talk more about suffering and mercy in the book of Daniel. We will yet talk more about suffering and mercy whatever book we come to because God says suffering is real and it's going to happen. But my mercy is greater than the suffering. This morning we find ourselves in Daniel, and sometimes in God's economy, mercy hurts. The merciful, the merciful uh, act of God can be painful, can be painful in a moment. We say, well, Brad, if it's supposed to be mercy, why does it hurt? Because sometimes it's the pain that compels us in a different direction. Sometimes it's the pain that reminds us we need to be moved from this place to another. And I think that's what's going on here in Daniel 4. And this, as Daniel begins to lay out the dream, the interpretation in verses 19 to 27, we are looking at a mercy, a mercy towards, Dan, or towards Nebuchadnezzar, rather, a mercy towards him that is ultimately going to be painful. But it's a necessary mercy because let me tell you one thing that holds value in our world. The one primary thing that holds value in our world, the thing that we should fight for, stand for, live for, be bold over is truth, is truth. You see, truth, there is truth, and it's laid out in Scripture. How do we combat the, the, you know, the culture, the, the sexual revolution? How do we combat injustice? How do we combat all the things our world has broken? I mean, we just sang about filling the world with peace. How does that begin? It begins peace, 
wholeness, the right ethic begin with the truth of Christ. With the truth of Christ. And so may we never shrink back from truth. Daniel has in a moment here, we're going to read, he has to tell the truth. He's compassionate. He's caring. He offers counsel. But when he stands before the king, the one thing that he can offer, that is the one thing that the king needs, that is the one thing that can actually extend mercy and change a heart, is the truth. And may we live that way. May I live that way. Pray for me to live that way. As I pray for you to live that way. Well, this morning, we come around to this interpretation. It starts in Daniel chapter 4, verse 19. We will read to verse 27. Beloved of God, this is God's infallible, inerrant word. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, and the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness then your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. So ends the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its power. Thank you for the fullness of it. Thank you for the truthfulness of it. I pray now it hits its mark in our hearts, that it renews our minds, that it stirs our hearts afresh, that it unleashes a power of the Holy Spirit to transform deeply. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Perhaps you're familiar with the name Sheldon Van Auken. If you are not, Sheldon Van Auken wrote a book entitled A Severe Mercy. I won't rehash the whole book for you. If you've not read it, I would highly recommend it to you. It is an interesting, it's kind of a compilation of a testimony of conversion and a testimony of deep trial. Well, in his book, he talks about his all-consuming love for his wife, or the lady who would eventually become his wife. But not only that, his all-consuming, like, it was an obsession with love itself, with relationship itself. He got so caught up in love and what relationship should be, he was beginning to lose sight of reality. He was beginning to make, or he made, he wasn't beginning, he made an idol of this. He made an idol of this relationship with his wife. He made an idol of the romantic side of the love between man and woman. Well, it was not long into their marriage, about 15 years, 
his wife died. And he had to deal with the reality and the pain of losing one whom he loved so much. The book is called A Severe Mercy because in his conversion to Christ and in some correspondence with C.S. Lewis, he began to call the loss of his wife a severe mercy, that God loved him enough to help break down idols and to draw him back into a deeper, richer, more true understanding of what love is meant to be. He saw this moment as very painful and very costly, but in the end, the means that God used to draw him to himself in a deeper, richer, fuller way. Now, perhaps you're saying, well, surely, Brad, there's got to be an easier, less horrific way. Perhaps there is. I'm not God. I don't know the whys. I'm learning more and more to stop asking them. But God mercifully brought down an idol. It was costly. It was painful. And so what do we take from that? What do I take from that? That sometimes, even in my own life and perhaps in yours too, it takes a severe mercy to see the truth. There's not a soul sitting in this room, would be my guess, unless they're very young, that doesn't have a tale or a story of pain and trial and hardship. And if you're in Christ, you've been able to now have the wherewithal to look back on that and go, aha, I see. I see what God is doing. I have several, and perhaps you do too. Those, my friends, are severe mercies. We don't love them. We wouldn't necessarily want to walk through it again, but we can appreciate what God has done. We see in Daniel 4 this idea of, or in Daniel 4, consistently mingling of mercy and judgment. Now, there is no doubt we know what judgment is. Judgment is meant to punish. It is meant to, in some cases, even condemn. But even in condemnation, why would we say that judgment is a mercy? Well, because to the people watching, it's a warning. It's an early warning sign of this is what happens when we abandon God, when we abandon truth, or when we abandon the way that is right. It's a warning to the wayward. Judgment, what does it do? Well, for those who witness, it's a call to repent, to see the judgment of God and to repent. That means turn away from it, walk in a different direction, remove yourself from things that would separate you from God. But it clearly lays out, what is judgment? It clearly lays out the end for sin. It clearly lets us know, how does God view sin? He judges it, period. What is the cross? It's the judgment of, of sin on Christ so that people could be saved. What is the final judgment? It's the final judgment on those who don't turn from their sin. He is telling us, so there is no doubt for the Christian what God's view of sin is. And as I've said to you many times before, it's theologies and people's faith go awry when they begin to try to make light of sin. Well, sin is not that bad, or they lose a deep, serious theology of sin, and that's where people go awry. We need to understand the seriousness of it. It's so serious, in fact, that God sent his son into the world to be hung on a cross so that its, its power could be diminished and dealt with. Nebuchadnezzar is shown a harsh truth in this dream. And we need to understand it is a harsh truth. It's a sobering truth to be reduced to an animal, to be reduced to almost nothing. What is the goal? Well, the goal is very clear. Until the time that you know that heaven rules. How long will this happen? Until, Nebuchadnezzar, you understand that heaven rules. That is a, a circumvents God. As, when he says heaven rules, that's just a way of speaking about Yahweh. 
until Nebuchadnezzar sees the truth. Generally, we keep mercy and judgment separate because we hesitate to think of an act of judgment may be the most loving thing that could happen in a moment. We don't typically think, think of it in those terms. Naturally so, because we tend to see judgment as negative and mercy, mercy as positive. But the scriptures don't let us make neat categories like that all the time. Sometimes they compel us to see that grace can be painful. Love can be painful. And in fact, if you've loved any amount of time, you understand love can be very painful. And sometimes a loving act is a painful act. And so these things are not as separate as we may often like to think. So we tend to see judgment as the opposite of love because judgment hurts and love is supposed to feel good. When we're loved by somebody, it's supposed to feel good. Well, if you've lived long enough, you understand that love does not always feel good. And if you are suffering from that notion right now, I'm happy to disabuse you of it. Love does not always feel good. In fact, it can be... I remember sitting in premarital counseling with visions and dreams of how great my marriage to Rachel was going to be and Bill telling us, you guys are going to have to remember what James says, that every good and perfect gift comes from God, that you two are a good and perfect gift for one another. He said, because you're going to wound each other more deeply than you can possibly imagine right now. We were like, what a downer, man. We're here to be learned, to be encouraged, and you're telling us that we're going to wound each other more deeply than we can possibly imagine? I mean, should we get somebody else in here that can maybe tell us the truth? Uh, he spoke more truly than he knew. As you've been married, you know that husband and wife can wound each other more deeply than they could have imagined in, during the engagement. But what's the beauty of that? That we're a good and perfect gift from God and those wounds get healed because love covers a multitude of sins. That has nothing to do with Daniel. That was just for free. <clears throat> Biblical love can often be painful because it demands our lives. Why is it painful? Because we have to lay down the very essence of who we are. We have to give up that thing that we're naturally in our flesh so prone to protect so tightly, to keep all the bad out, to not let anyone bad or evil get through so that we stay right. But biblical love demands that in some senses we lay it down knowing we're going to get stepped on, we're going to get hurt, we're going to be in pain. That's part of the call to love as Christ loves us. It demands our lives. That is why, as I state often, that Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, the gospel bids us to come and die. To come and die. And death is not a fun prospect. The final judgment is coming, beloved. So let's thank God that smaller judgments happen, that judgments throughout the scriptures are there for our benefit, to be reminded of, of God's holiness, God's righteousness, so that they compel us to trust in Jesus and not ourselves. With those thoughts in mind, there's one idea I want for us to see, and it's all what I've already plainly, clearly stated. Even in judgment, God can show mercy. Even in judgment, God can show mercy. One of my well, a favorite hymn of mine is When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. I love that hymn. But when he talks about in that hymn, what is the cross? It's the place where love and sorrow meet. That's one of the lines within that hymn. It's the place where love and sorrow meet. Why? Well, it's judgment on sin, of course. We understand that if we understand the gospel. It is the judgment of God upon sin, but it's also the mercy of God extended to sinners. And so when this place by the Jesus driven to the cross, 
by the love of God. He willingly accepted that. He went there under compulsion by love, knowing he was submitting to wrath and judgment, pain, for the express purpose that we might then know righteousness through his sacrifice. It's the place where mercy hurts. The place where mercy is painful. The place where love calls us then to die with him so that we might live with him. So this morning, Christian Daniel, we're looking at a severe mercy of God. We're looking at the way, that we're looking at what we see consistently that some of God's greatest acts of mercy come through deep pain. They just do. They come through deep pain. I've quoted this before, but a, a Christian artist who I used to listen to in one of his songs, there's a lyric. He says, when what is true feels more like a knife, it looks like you're killing me, but you're saving my life. Pain, mercy, mercy can be painful. When we look at this, we start in, in verse 19. We're going to see three aspects of, of Daniel here in his character. And first we see a very compassionate Daniel. Verse 19 lays this out for us. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. And the king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. So right off the bat, we see Daniel coming to Nebuchadnezzar to explain things. He's coming with compassion. He's coming with a sense of, of grace. His words here, I think, we don't have to think that he is just kind of being nice or obligatory. I think we can look at his words and show that they reflect some genuine concern. Daniel has a genuine concern because as God's people, that's how we should live our lives. We should have genuine concern. We shouldn't have, we will rejoice when people are going through trials or hardship. We should have genuine concern. And it's interesting how the Aramaic describes Daniel. Quite literally, the ESV says dismayed, but quite literally appalled, which I like that word a little bit better. It's graphic. Appalled. Daniel was appalled for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. Now, if you, if you look, let your eyes gaze back up to verse 9, the king had said, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mercy or no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions. He had just said that Daniel doesn't get literally there, doesn't get dismayed, doesn't get appalled by dreams and mysteries. Now here we hear Daniel is appalled. Why? Is it because he doesn't understand no, that's not the issue. The issue is quite the opposite. He understands clearly what the Lord is saying to Nebuchadnezzar and what he's about to have to tell him, and so he is dismayed. He is alarmed. He understands the, the sobering truth of what is about to fall on this man who has not lived for Yahweh. In other words, we look at a man who's about to declare a judgment, and he takes no pleasure in it. He's not happy to be there. He's not like, yes, finally, you get what you deserve. He is disturbed. Why? Well, there's a genuine care because all of life is sacred. This has always been the heart cry of Yahweh's people. Life is sacred. This is why we fight so hard for, uh, to, to protect life in the womb because life is sacred. This is why we want to see people rescued from modern-day slavery because life is sacred. 
This is why when, when people, even that we don't know, are harmed, there is a, a tinge of sadness because in the depth of our being, life is sacred. It was true for Daniel. It was true. It's true for us. And in some sense, we can, I think we can extrapolate here that Daniel wants Nebuchadnezzar to know the grace of God. He wants him to see it for what it is. He wants him to understand the truth. Daniel continues with an interesting, in an interesting direction. And, and he answered and said, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. Well, what do we make of that? Well, basically, Daniel's saying, Well, if I had my way, or would that this judgment fell on the people who hate you? That's what he's saying. We'll take that as a note of grace. And now you may think that's crazy to talk about it that way, but so when, when he talks to basically, he's telling Nebuchadnezzar, I would, I would that this judgment would pass from you that you not have to walk in this judgment. He wants Nebuchadnezzar to flourish. He wants Nebuchadnezzar to, to be whole. He wants him to be right. But you know, what do we, when we hear that, how do, we, how do we apply that to us? When we think about the truth therein, how do we think of it? You know, this is something that I think human in, humans in general struggle with, but you know what I would say to us as Christians? God doesn't, it's not God's heart for us to wish evil even on evil people. It is not God's heart for us to wish evil even on evil people. I'm not saying we can admire evil people. I'm not saying you can't look at things like what Hitler and Stalin have done in history and not be appalled by it and pray for God's judgment on wickedness and evil. But when we see evil people, people still made in the image of God, we must understand that there is something sacred about them as well. Can we pray that their regimes be stopped? Can we pray that they be stopped in their tracks? Yes, and we should. We have the imprecatory psalms for that purpose. The psalms of judgment that pray for God's judgment to fall on wickedness. But, beloved, we have to guard our hearts lest we become like the very thing that we hate lest we become tyrants, lest we become the people who don't see life as sacred, lest we become the people who scoff. It's natural. It's natural to wish evil on evil people. I'm guilty. I've done it before. Just so you know, I've done it. Not proud of it, but I've done it. But that's not God's heart. That is not God's heart. We can pray for judgment on wickedness. But you know the best prayer we can pray for people that we perceive as evil and wicked is God rescue that heart. Father, rescue their heart. Draw them out of wickedness into righteousness. Because evil is evil and God will judge it. But we need to leave that up to God. And so when we look at Daniel here, there is a note of compassion. He's a captive of Nebuchadnezzar, and he wants him to flourish. We can take a lesson from that. Secondly, another aspect of Daniel's character is complete and total honesty. Verses 20 to 26 capture Daniel not shying away from saying what must be said. So he's compassionate, but he's also brutally honest. He tells the truth. So when you look here at verses 20 and 21, he's essentially rehearsing the dream, the dream that we've already read. He's, he's looking at the tree. He's talking about the tree in all its glory. This tree is a picture 
of resplendent glory, you see. When you look at the tree and you think about the full leaves and all the fruit and all the branches and its height, its visibility, it offers shade, it gives security, it's completely sufficient. It's completely sufficient. It does everything that people think they need, seemingly. It's beautiful to behold. It's majestic. It's the very picture of royalty. We're looking at a picture of absolute royalty. It's provisional. All of life depends on it. All of life depends on it. It sustains all. There's something subtle working in this, though. As beautiful as it is, majestic as it is, as all-encompassing as it is, as all-sufficient as it is, God is painting us a picture of what idolatry sells itself as. You don't need more than the tree. The tree is all you need. Come to the tree. That's where you find your life. Come to the tree. That's where you find your provision. Come to the tree. That's where you are protected. Come to the tree. That's where you really find your worth. It's typical of idolatry. Come and worship this idol. That's where you'll find your hope. That's where you'll find your protection. That's where you'll find happiness. This is what idolatry does. It sells itself as this beautiful, glorious, royal, majestic thing that's going to give us the very things that we think we can't find anywhere else, which I've told you before, the the primary pursuit in all this is peace. The one thing that Jesus says, my peace I give you. (laughs) His peace we have. Idolatry says, yeah, but you come to this and you're going to have peace like you've never known before. That's exactly what we see in this tree, this thing, this, this object that is there to sustain and say you need nothing else. Well, Daniel, right here in verse 22, it is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. That's a little bit of flattery there. Daniel is using typical language of his time. It is you, O king. Nebuchadnezzar is this picture of success. But you know what's interesting? You know what God did to Nebuchadnezzar and for him? He gave him a dream of the picture of this tree because that type of success and royalty and majesty is exactly how Nebuchadnezzar sees himself. Which is why he needs to learn that heaven rules, not that tree. He needs to learn that he is not all sufficient. God is. So yes, we're looking at idolatry. Yes, we're looking at Nebuchadnezzar and how he sees himself. But then the the vision shifts, just like it did the first time we read it. It shifts here. Right after this, and because the king, in verse 23, saw a watcher, a holy one coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, leave the stump of its roots in the earth. When the watcher is introduced, that again, we understand, we shift now to judgment. Clearly, this is about judgment. The holy watcher, we talked about this a few weeks ago, the agent of judgment in this context. What what does he do? He comes in, and as you see in the verses, he quickly, simply, easily destroys the majesty that Nebuchadnezzar has built. In a word, Nebuchadnezzar has spent his lifetime being this tree, becoming this tree, getting to the place of this tree, and in one moment, God's word says, chop it down and it's down. There is no tree. There are no limbs. There there are no leaves. There is no fruit. There is no shade. There are no branches. There are no places for birds to go or animals to shade or people to eat. There is nothing. There is a stump. And in a moment, God's Word. We're looking at the power of God versus the power of the man. Who is Lord? The Most High is Lord, not Nebuchadnezzar. The question that we come back round to 
again and again and again. Nebuchadnezzar here, where understanding is no match for Yahweh. He labored his whole life to build, and in a word, it's undone. We just said that. He compels us to see. He compels us to confess the greatness of God in this moment. Yes, it's a hard circumstance. What is the end goal? To see the truth. To see the truth and then do something with the truth. In the Christian context, to see the truth and then let it lead us to worship. To worship. Truth's goal is not just to make, help us win arguments. If that's all we want the truth for, we need a heart change. Truth's goal, truth, the goal of truth is to lead us into worship. That is why Jesus said in John that we worship in spirit and in truth, that worship is not disconnected from truth. Truth is meant to do something in our hearts and lead us to worship. So we see here, verse 25, you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. You will be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Judgment. He's driven from humanity to live like a beast. You ever wonder why God chooses this one? Uh, just so you know, in, in a lot of commentaries, people try to really psychologize this and, and try to say that, that Nebuchadnezzar suffered from a real psychological disorder. Could he have? Sure, he could have. That could be true. But I don't want us to miss the supernatural implication of this, that God did something, a judgment in him that drove him out. Now, I'm not, I mean, yes, could he have suffered from this disorder? Sure, that could have been a thing. But I don't want that to take away from the reality that this was a judgment from God so that we don't mistake this just as some sort of coincidence. This is not a coincidence. This is providence. So he's driven out to live like a beast. Why do we, why we ask, why would he do that? Well, one, primarily because sin makes us beastly. Sin reduces us to animalistic instincts and intents. It robs us of our humanity because when I'm locked into a pattern of sin, you become not a person but an object. My goal is not to give glory to God. My goal is to live for the pleasure of my flesh. It makes us aggressive, predatory. And Nebuchadnezzar, in his quest for power, had abdicated his own humanity. He had saw human beings as nothing more than objects to be dis discarded at his whim, or at his will. So God is turning him into the very thing in his heart he'd become so that he can live like that and see the reality of what sin does. Sin, beloved, it robs us of our humanity. It makes us like an animal. When we understand that we are put on this earth, we are put on this earth. You and I are put on this earth to worship God. Now, are you supposed to labor? Yes. Should we be in community and relationships and marriage? Absolutely. Should we worship? Absolutely. You are put on this earth, and I am put on this earth to live in a relationship with God. And when we reject the God of heaven and that relationship... 
it is a rejection of, the, of our true humanity. Because now we live in a way that is contrary to our creation. That is why people lost in cycles of sin, it's easy for them to disregard life. It's easy for them to skirt ethics. It's easy for them to do all these things that we think are awful because the driving point in their life, the driving characteristic in their lives has been severed. There is no relationship with God. However, having said all this, even in judgment, there is provision. What are some things that we notice? God doesn't utterly destroy Nebuchadnezzar, does he? Now, he reduces him down to a stump, so there's not much left, but there's something left. And it may seem harsh to us, but his life was spared. He didn't ultimately take his life in this judgment. Now, I'm sure he didn't love eating grass, but he didn't starve either. Provision was made that he not waste away. And here I'll say something. Sometimes we want God to provide in a certain way, and he doesn't do it, and we don't like provision, but we can't deny that God has provided. God's provision, the provision he gives, may not be the provision that we want, but so often it is the provision that we need. And he's done this here in Daniel. He's done this for Nebuchadnezzar. What we see here is even in the midst of judgment, we see a compassionate God showing mercy to a man who didn't deserve it. The kingdom is spared in the stump, we said. Nebuchadnezzar's life is spared, we said. God provides all these things. Why does God preserve him? For the same reason he preserved me and you, if you call Christ Lord this morning, so that we could see the truth and be transformed by it. Was Nebuchadnezzar transformed? Probably not. Who knows? We don't really know for sure. But God is not going to let him out from underneath this judgment until he makes the declaration that he eventually will make. Even if he doesn't stick forever, he sees it in a moment. The last verse of this is one final aspect to Daniel's character I think is worth noting, and it's that Daniel, it says right here in the text, let my counsel be acceptable to you. What does Daniel do? He gives counsel. He gives advice, a little bit of guidance to Nebuchadnezzar. What does he tell him? Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. In light of this truth, Daniel gives him this counsel. What does he say in a nutshell? Repent. If you'll just repent, if you will break off from sinning. Literally, it says, break off from sinning with righteousness. In other words, indulge, embrace righteousness and not your sin. Turn from sin to righteousness. Seek out God's ethic for your life. And perhaps God will show you mercy. But he also encourages him to have compassion on the oppressed. Did you catch that note? By showing mercy to the oppressed. Break off from your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. Have compassion, like Daniel has modeled in his, in his court, as Yahweh has modeled before him. Show mercy to the weak. That's what he's telling him. Now, I want us to be clear on this. There is a context here. This is not a broad statement on social justice or anything like that. This is a statement specifically on how Nebuchadnezzar could show a true and genuine heart change, but it bears out for all people. 
What is a great way that our hearts are exposed in the broader, larger culture? How we treat weaker and more vulnerable people than us. How we treat the weak and the vulnerable. And so that becomes a major, major fruit of a life whose heart has been changed by God. So when he's telling Nebuchadnezzar, choose mercy, not oppression. Choose grace, not death, for those who are more vulnerable than you. And the final act of mercy here is that word perhaps. Perhaps God would be willing to avert judgment if you truly show that you were changed before the judgment fell. Daniel is suggesting that if Nebuchadnezzar had a heart change, that perhaps God, he doesn't say God would, he just says God might avert judgment. Of course, this raises another question that I want to answer very briefly. Does this mean that God cancels judgment in the Old Testament? God never cancels judgment. God does avert judgment for some times. He does decide not to judge in a moment. One the most glaring example I can think of is Jonah and the Ninevites. When Jonah says, goes and preaches repentance, the Ninevites repent and God holds back his judgment. God does not cancel judgment in biblical literature. God defers it. When God decides to judge, wickedness will be judged. Wickedness and sin will be judged. And some reasons only known to God, sometimes he holds back. Sometimes he unleashes it. But let us understand that when judgment is deferred, ultimately, this is all pointing toward Christ, that Jesus takes the sin and the wrath of God on himself, and God judges it there. So judgment is never canceled. It is deferred. It is deferred until a later time or until it is applied to Christ. Judgment can be God's best act of mercy. I'm sure that if we asked the Apostle Paul about this, he'd agree. On the road to Damascus, he was knocked off his horse and blinded by the resurrected Christ. And we must understand that this was a temporal judgment of God. Why? For hard-heartedness. Why did he blind him? Because he wouldn't see the truth. Take your eyesight away for a little while. A temporal judgment of God. Do you think Paul would ultimately call that moment a mercy? I do. No doubt he would. For in this moment of pain, God made a dead heart alive. Severe mercies hurt, but they're a good gift from a good father. Severe mercies are meant to protect us from the final judgment where matters are sealed. A painful judgment may be hard in a moment, but it is often a grace disguised. So may we embrace the mercy of God no matter how painful it might be. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for its power, its beauty, its truth. I thank you for the grace that is therein and that you have chosen to call us to yourself. Thank you for mercy. As we understand, mercy is so rich and beautiful because we don't deserve it. And yet you give it. You give it freely. You give it with lavish love and grace. I pray for our hearts to love it, to lean into it, and when the pain comes, to be reminded that you are bigger than our pain, that pain is real and it hurts, and we grieve and lament and all the things, and those are right and good to do. But joy always has the last word in the kingdom of God, and help us to remember that. It's through Christ we pray. Amen.